want to start, I just want to give a quick shout out to my friend Mike, who's in Georgia this week. He's, uh, he's listening online. Uh, Mike is out processing from the Army after seven years, so I just want to say, uh, love you, man. Appreciate you. Glad you're, uh, glad you're part of the family. Uh, this is going to be week seven of the story. Uh, it picks up in Joshua, the book of Joshua. Chapter seven actually starts at Joshua 1.1, uh, but if you were to fast forward in there all the way to Joshua chapter 24, there's a, a pretty interesting scene that plays out right there. Uh, Joshua has led the people at this point into the promised land, and it has not been easy, uh, but they have settled down in the promised land, the land of Canaan uh, that God had promised to them years and years and years before this. And at this point, Joshua is an old man. He's fairly near the end of his life, and he gathers up the whole nation. And uh, he says to them essentially this, uh, you followed Moses out of Egypt and through the desert, and you followed me into the promised land uh, and all that went with that. Now I'm calling every one of you. He gives them this instruction. He says, I want you to choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Not to follow Moses, not to follow me, but whom you will serve. And then he says, at the end he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He makes a declaration. He he says, uh, not just for me, but also my house, the future generations of my family, just a little shout out for parents and grandparents in the room, we will serve the Lord. Uh, we're not going to serve ourselves. We're not going to serve the gods that our ancestors served. We're going we're gonna to serve the Lord. We're going to press ahead to experience the fullness of what God has for us. And then he burns the ships. He eliminates the possibility of going back. Remember last week, last week, there were people who wanted to go back to Egypt. There's number one. That wanted to go back to Egypt. Uh, Joshua eliminates that as a possibility. Joshua refused to settle down and make camp in the place that God wanted him to pass through on his way to bigger and better things. And so he's pressing ahead. He's burning the ships in his life. There's no going back. And we're doing this thing called the story, and what the story is, um, if, you have, uh, if you have a copy of the story, it's, uh, it's the Bible, but what the editors did was they rearranged it in chronological order, uh, because the Bible really is a collection of 66 books, and so uh, it, in large scale, it's in generally chronological order, but a lot of the specific events are not. So they rearranged them in chronological order. And they also took out a lot of the things that don't pertain to the big narrative. Uh, and so the idea is we're trying to just capture a sense of what is God up to in the grand scheme of humanity. And the reason that's important is, I, I've used this analogy so many times, but uh, if you were to take a puzzle and, uh, and you didn't have the box, you just had all the pieces, theoretically, you could, by trial and error, eventually just get all the pieces in the right place and complete the puzzle, right? But if you have the box to look at, you can actually see the overview of what the picture is. You don't have all the details because you can't see the shape of each individual piece, but you get an overview so that you have a context for the pieces. That's what the story really will do for us so that as we pick up the individual pieces, we can plug them into the exact right spot. And so so that's our goal. If you don't have a copy of the story, if you're new or you're visiting or you just don't have one, take the card that's on your seat, fill it out, and take it to the Connect table afterwards. We would love to give you a copy of that. That would be our gift to you. So here's where we're at. 
quickie catch-up version. At the beginning, God created everything, and it was all good. What would it be like to live in a world that's all good? I don't know. I bet it was amazing. But really quickly, sin entered, to the, entered the scene, and what previously was, uh, was incorrupt is now corrupt. Things like death, chaos, disease, a heartache, struggle, all these things that never existed before came into the world by way of sin, rebellion against God's instructions. So now, after that, we see that because God loves humanity and he is by nature so gracious, he's promised, he's made a plan to send a savior through whom, get this, he would restore all things back to very good, their original state. Now, isn't it great to know we're actually moving back toward being all good? Uh, Sometimes we look around at the world and we think, okay, we're going to hell in a handbasket. There's no way that this is moving toward all in good. But, but let me just turn you back to something that we read. Remember, at the time of Noah, God said that every thought and intent of the heart of humans was only evil all the time. Well, if you look at where we're at today, yes, there's a lot of evil in the world, but it's not only evil all the time. There's a lot of good stuff happening in the world, too. We're actually on an upward trajectory. Don't get me wrong. We've got a long ways to go. I'm just saying there's hope. God is restoring all things. And in that process, he made a promise to a guy named Abraham, that he would send a savior through Abraham's family. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 14, it says, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had departed from him, look around from where you are to the north and the south, to the east and the west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Uh, God brought, uh, brought Abram and his family to Canaan, Uh, It's the same place that we refer to as the promised land. And he said, all of this is yours, and it will belong to your descendants forever. And so Abram settled down there, and he began to raise a family, and they multiplied generation by generation. And after about 200 years, his family was actually forced to leave Canaan because of a a famine. Now, this was in the time of Joseph. Joseph. So they actually picked up and left Canaan and went to Egypt where there, was, where there was food after about 200 years. So now where we're at in chapter 7, it's actually been about 700 years since God first made that promise. I'm going to give this land to you and your descendants. They went to Egypt after 200 years and they spent 430 years in Egypt. Now, eventually, things sort of deteriorated and they went from being... Uh, blessed and welcomed in Egypt, to being oppressed, to eventually being slaves. And after 430 years, God raised up Moses to lead them out. You remember the story a couple weeks ago? They came out of Egypt, headed toward the promised land. It should have taken them just maybe a week or two to get there, uh, but it ended up taking 40 years. Okay, so if you back up and do all that math, God made the promise 200 years go by, 400 plus years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert. It's been almost 700 years since God first made the promise by the time we get to chapter 7. Now, if you were to live in your neighborhood and your family had been there for a couple of years, you'd be pretty well, a couple hundred years, you'd be pretty well rooted, right? Uh, but then if you left for 500 years, somebody else is going to move into the old neighborhood. Uh, it's not going to still be your family's vacant land anymore. And that's what's happened to Egypt. Uh, to Israel. They've gotten back to the promised land, but it's been resettled by other people, and other nations have grown up into what was their land. 
and so as you read chapter 7, what you're going to see is some things that might offend your sensitivities in our culture. Um, it's, it's a really interesting part of the Bible, but um, some of the stories are less familiar, but there's some really difficult stuff. We get in this position where our American sensitivities and what I like to call our cultural Christian values, which aren't necessarily biblical, just like cultural things that we think are Christian, uh, those things, when we read the story, they kind of get buddied up with things that are actually Christian, like biblical Christian values, and they don't play nice together in this particular section. Uh, this, is, this is a section that's really hard for a lot of people to swallow. In fact, uh, a lot of people will actually reject the Bible, reject Christianity altogether because they have such a hard, uh, they have such a hard time with some of the things in chapter 7. A lot of them aren't very palatable. Uh, so at the next, end of the next few minutes, you may not come around to being totally comfortable with them. I don't think probably that you will, uh, but I just want to go back to something that we've repeated over and over since the very beginning. If we believe that the first four, four words of the Bible are true, that in the beginning, God, if we believe that that's true, then it shouldn't be difficult to get on board with the idea that he probably knows some things I don't know. He probably understands things differently than I do. If he's sovereign over everything and he's the creator, he probably knows some things that I don't know. And so uh, maybe he can just understand things a little bit differently than me. So here we go. Uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this is a fun section. If you've read the story, uh, you know that the way the Israelites got their land back when they got to Canaan was they went in and for the most part, they took it by force. God led them into battle to take it back. They destroy cities there's death and destruction all along the way, and it's not very easy for us as a society uh, that really values uh, human rights and individual rights more than any other society probably ever in human history. Uh, it's not easy for us to stomach that idea. That's, that's just kind of the rea functional reality where we're at, and there's really two fundamental problems that we have. One, it doesn't seem fair, and two, it's just kind of brutal. Like, there's just things that are, like, that are violent, that are just tough for us to stomach uh, right there. And so I'd ask the question, what about fairness? What about the idea of justice? It doesn't seem just. First of all, I guess I'd say that when I presume, when I consider something not fair, if I declare it to be not fair or unjust, I'm presuming to know what is fair. Does that make sense? I'm presuming to know what is just. And so if you struggle with the story this week as you read through chapter 7, because of the fairness, because fairness or justice is a high value to you, uh, good, because it's one of God's highest values too. 2 Chronicles 9.8 tells us that God appointed Solomon as king over Israel for a specific reason. Get this. It says, because of the love of your God for Israel and his desire to uphold them forever, he has made you, Solomon, king over them to maintain justice and righteousness. If justice is a high value to you, which it is for us as a society, that's good news. It's a high value to God as well. But man, you might say, it's just, it's brutal. The way they just came in and destroyed cities, they just came in and destroyed everyone and everything. Uh, I won't pretend to have an answer for that's going to pacify or satisfy everyone's discomfort with that. Uh, but consider this. Um, they just spent 40 years with God out in the desert. It took God 40 years to detoxify them from all of the things that they learned when they were mixed in with a sort of a wicked, oppressive, idolatrous people back in Egypt. God had to take them out in the desert for two generations just to get all of that out. 
So what I would say to that is it makes sense from God's perspective uh, that he needs to make sure and rid the land of these other groups of people. He's sort of purging the land, if you will, so that they're not, they're not mixing in uh, other beliefs with their faith in him, if that makes sense. And the truth is, our discomfort with the story really kind of comes from our own presumption to know in and of ourselves right and wrong better than God. Like if I read that story and I say, no, that's not right, what God did right there, I'm saying, I'm putting myself as the moral authority above him, if that makes sense. And so I think that's something we got to be careful about. I'll give you an example of how this can happen. Uh, In 2 Samuel 6, uh, this is a fascinating story to me. Uh, There's this instance where King David has, uh, he's decided that he wants to have the Ark of the Covenant moved. Okay, so if you're not familiar with what the Ark of the Covenant is, uh, at, at that point, it was, uh, you could consider it like a container, like a fancy container. That doesn't do it justice, but that's, that's what it is. Uh, God's presence dwells with the ark. So everywhere it goes, that's where God's presence is. Now, a New Testament perspective is totally different. God, God's presence, he dwells with us. Uh, he is in his creation, he's over his creation, but he's also with us. But Uh, And this time, his presence dwelled with the ark, and they would take it around uh, wherever the tabernacle was, that was their place of worship, and they would keep it in what they called the Holy of Holies, and God's presence was always there. And so, God gave them specific instructions about how to move the ark of the covenant, how to to handle his presence. Well, uh, King David wanted to have it moved, and so a group of guys, they decided, well, we're not going to, like, do the thing with the poles through it and carry it by hand, we're going to put it on a cart. And, uh, you know, that's, that makes sense for us, right? Because, like, work smarter, not harder, right? Like, that's totally logical. Why not? Uh, so they put it on the cart, and they had a team of oxen pulling it. And as they're going down the road, one of the oxen stumbles, and the ark starts to fall off the cart. Now, one of the commands that God had given them was, don't touch the ark, because uh, God's presence is perfect and holy, and you can't mix corruption and incorruption, right? So he said, just don't touch the ark or you'll die. If you touch my holiness, you, you won't be able to survive that. So they put it on the cart, and they're moving down the road, and the oxen stumble, and the ark starts to fall off the cart. And one of the guys' name is Uzzah. And he thinks probably what you and I would think. I can't let the presence of God fall in the dirt. I mean, isn't that what you would be thinking? That's what I would be thinking for sure. I can't let the presence of God fall in the dirt. So he puts out his hand to stop it from falling off the cart. And what happened? He died. Does that seem fair? I mean, he was just trying to like be respectful of God's presence. I can't let it fall in the dirt. Uh, That's exactly, I would think probably what all of us would do. Because that seems like the right thing to do, right? Now, I'm presuming to know what's right better than God does, because God said, don't touch it. But I'm thinking, I can't let it fall in the dirt. That's exactly what he thought. But then he died. Here's where his mistake was. You ready for this? Somehow, he presumed in his knowledge that his hand was cleaner than the dirt. Like, it was more respectful of God for it to touch his hand than it was the dirt. But if you think about it, like, the dirt has no moral quality. It's totally neutral, Humans are different. Does that, that make sense? It seems like the reasonable thing to do, but he was actually deciding for himself what was right and what was wrong, and it was the opposite of what God had said. When we decide what's right and wrong, like when we read the stories and we're like, that's not fair, that's not just, that shouldn't happen, we're presuming to have a better understanding of right and wrong 
than God is. Uh, and I know that makes us sound like terrible people. None of us is doing it on purpose. That's just the reality of what we're doing. So a good question might be, okay, so I'm reading this story, and the Israelites come in, and they destroy this whole village. What if there were innocent people there? That's a viable question, isn't it? I think a lot of people would ask that question. If there's innocent people there, because justice is such a high value for God and he can only be consistent, you can trust that they received justice just as much as the guilty people did. Uh, I give you an example. Uh, if, you, if you're packing the story, it's on page 89. That's Joshua 1.1 if you have a Bible handy. If you don't, that's okay. I'm going to just read it out loud to you. Joshua 1.1, this is what it says. After the death of Moses, okay, that's an important part. Moses just died. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead this people to inherit the land that I swore to their ancestors to give. Now, uh, if you were to read right before this at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses just died. Okay? He, he can literally see the promised land, right? He's, he went through all of the trouble that it took to get the people out of Egypt, 40 years in the desert with these whiny people. If you remember from last week, they were just ridiculous. 40 years, he gets to where he can see the promised land. Like, I'm looking right across the street. Like, there it is. There's a for sale sign in the front yard. He gets there, and that's where he dies. Moses got hosed, did he not? Is that not a terrible deal for Moses? Like, when I look at it, I'm like, that is not fair. That is not just. Moses is a good man for crying out loud. Um, here's, my, here's a question, though, that I would ask. Uh, what happened right after Moses died? Like, where was Moses? He's in whatever the place that God had prepared for him looks like. Do you think Moses is there going, oh, man, God, I was almost there. Like, just let me go back and hang out at the Middle East and fight in some wars and travel through the desert some more. Does it seem reasonable to think that that's what Moses was longing for? Like, everyone, all of us think Moses got hosed, but Moses is probably thinking something more like, knock yourself out, Joshua. I'll be here when you're done. Right? He's probably thinking something more along those lines. He, he didn't get host. Um, he got a reward. It doesn't seem fair on the surface, but I guess my point is, like, we can trust that God did justice for Moses, right, for his obedience. Uh, we can trust the same thing uh, with the people that we read about in the story. Uh, God keeps them out of the promised land until Moses is dead, and then he leads them in through Joshua. But Moses is in a much better place. Moses is already good. He's not worried about it. Everyone feels bad for him, but he's fine, I promise. Uh, someday you can ask him yourself if you'd like. But it just goes to show the obvious reality, I think, that uh, even when I don't understand what God is doing, what I'm called to do in the scripture is to trust that he does know what he's doing, even when I don't understand it. Uh, maybe you've noticed, you picked up on it through the story, that faith is really the central principle running through the entire story. Faith is what God wanted from the Israelites, and it's what he's asking of us. 
Um, that's not always easy, especially depending on your own disposition. Like some of us are more inquisitive. We want to know, and it's harder. Uh, but faith is really what God is looking for. Uh, so I would just encourage you as you read those things in the story and kind of struggle with it, uh, just know that God's perspective is infinite compared to ours for sure. Uh, you're all very smart, I can tell, uh, but he's smarter. Uh, if, if he can create everything, he's smarter than me. Uh, so I'd just remind you, I'd point you back to Proverbs 3, 5, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and in all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. And it starts with trusting in him. But I read the story and it looks like the Old Testament God is like angry, mean God And the New Testament God is like buddy God. Like the Old Testament God is sort of like the almighty smiter, like uh, this this picture right here. It looks like the Old Testament God is just sitting up in heaven at his computer screen, like just ready to zap (laughs) people, right? It it reads that way. And then the New Testament God is like this one. He's like cool with whatever, buddy Jesus. Uh, If you were around in the 70s, which I was not, uh, you, uh, you might remember. I'm told that was a big thing back in the day. Um, It kind of looks like that, but neither of them really is true. And I would just point you to the idea that as you read in the Old Testament, maybe we kind of think, oh, like that's the angry God. But when people were in trouble, when things weren't going well, when you look at Moses and things were just awful, what did he do? He wasn't like dodging the lightning bolts. He actually ran to God. He inquired of God. God, help me. He went to him for help. Uh, The same as we're called to do in the New Testament. But we shouldn't be surprised by the death we see. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 says that the wage of sin is death. Uh, I, I wish that wasn't the case, but the outcome of sin is death. As you read the narrative, before sin entered the world, death didn't exist. That's how it, that's how it came in. I remember Satan came to Adam and Eve, and he confused what God said. God said, don't, don't eat from that fruit, because when you do, you'll die. And then... Uh, The serpent came and was like, did God really say you'll die? You won't die. Actually, you'll live. You'll be like God. He confused what God had said and turned it around on them. Uh, Before sin into the world, that wasn't the problem. That wasn't a problem. But sin is actually the dilemma in the middle of the big narrative of all humanity. Sin is the dilemma in the battle between good and evil. So was Uzzah innocent? No, he wasn't innocent. He was guilty. He did the opposite of what God had instructed. God said, don't touch it, and he touched it. He wasn't innocent. He probably was a really nice guy trying to be really respectful of the ark, but he wasn't innocent. And did he receive the stated consequence, the stated penalty uh, for the, his rebellion against what God had instructed? Yeah, he, he did. So when people, we see people like Uzzah or the strange story of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, if you're familiar with that, or we read chapter 7 about the people in Canaan who actually paid for their sins, they actually got the stated penalty, I think a better question that we should probably ask is why don't more people die directly because of their sin? Uh, Because that's actually what's like clearly stated. The Bible says the wage of sin is death. It's It's not cruel, it's just clearly stated expectation. God in the Old Testament gets angry towards sin. God in the New Testament gets angry towards sin. Remember, Jesus drove the people out of the temple and flipped over their tables because he said, you've made my father's house into a den of robbers. Uh, Do you know that Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven? Why would he do that? Because the consequences are so high. Uh, And Satan, of course, would love to just make it seem like not that big a deal, like Buddy Jesus style. 
But the rest of the verse takes on a whole new level of importance in the light of sin's consequences. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And this is why we celebrate today, uh, because Jesus paid for our sins. It's why billions of people all over the world are gathered together to celebrate the resurrection. This is really what it's, what it's all about. Uh, if I could tell you one thing before never seeing you again, it would be this verse, that the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, it teaches us all kinds of things, but it, it says that not only, uh, not only have we moved from being the object of God's wrath to the object of God's mercy, but now that that reconciliation has happened, we actually get to participate in the good things that God has for us to do with our lives, both salvation from our sin and being reconciled back to God's good plans are ours as a free gift, the free gift of God through Christ. The Canaanites that you read about getting booted from their land, they're simply getting the stated penalty. They're simply getting, honestly, what we all deserve from a biblical standpoint. The Canaanites practiced all kinds of wickedness. As you read the story, you'll, you'll find out that they practiced things like prostitution in worship, uh, even sacrificing of children to idols, things that sort of shed a new light and were like, okay, I understand why God was so offended by that. Uh, but the actual reason God sent the Israelites to destroy them wasn't because the Israelites were just awesome. Uh, it was because the stated penalty for the sin of the other people is death. Get this, Deuteronomy 9.5, God says, it is not because of your righteousness or integrity that you are going in to take possession of the land. It's not because you're awesome, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're doing this, this called the story, okay? And uh, we see this happen, sin is the problem all the way through. Uh, it, we're looking at the overarching narrative, narrative of, the, of the scripture, and here's one thing you're going to see over and over again, and it's already starting to take shape, that God's first move is always grace. It's always grace. You may, you may not feel like you deserve that, or maybe you feel like you really do deserve that. Either way, God's first move is like raising, is, is always grace. It's like raising your children. Uh, I have three kids. If you're a parent, you totally get this. Uh, you, you want to show them grace, and you see them kind of veering off the wrong direction. You want to show them grace. Hey, buddy, think about this. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe go back the other way. Uh, think about where this road is leading you. But eventually, as they're going down the path, if they can't course correct, you have to correct for them, right? If you love them, you have to correct for them, whether that's through discipline or uh, whatever means that is. Like, that's the job of parenting, and that's the same thing that God is doing right here. So I hope that's in some way helpful to you because there are some difficult things in here. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to pray, and I want to invite you to just say yes to Jesus. That's what, we're, that's what we're about, is helping people know Jesus. If it was playing church, we would do this all much more fancy-like. Uh, it really is about helping people know Jesus as the gateway to every good thing that God wants to do in your life. But I just want to call attention. Uh, this week, you'll go out and hopefully find the time to read chapter 7, uh, but I want to call attention to one other thing that happens in the story, um, because I think it will be an absolute lifeboat to some of you. Uh, so I, I hopefully you'll pay really close attention to this. Uh, we see uh, Moses is, or God is passing the baton from Moses 
to Joshua, and uh, he's attempting to lead the people into the promised land. And so uh, if you picked up it right there, picked up on it in chapter one, uh, God says to, to Joshua, there's no like on-ramp for this, right? He just says, Moses, my servant is dead. You and all those two million people go take the promised land. This, he doesn't like have like a six-week training program or anything. He's like, get up and go, uh, which is pretty incredible. Trial by fire for sure. But three times God says, I am with you. I will be with you. Why will it succeed? Because I will be with you. As I was with Moses, I will be with you everywhere you go. It's the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 28 to his disciples. I will be with you always. I am with you always. Uh, Why will you be able to thrive through the difficult circumstances? Because I will be with you. This is the promise that he makes to everyone who trusts in him. Uh, sometimes, I don't know if it's this way for you, but sometimes it's easier for me to believe the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning God, than it is for me to believe that God is with me. Uh, and I don't know why that is, maybe just because it's like, yeah, that was a way long time ago and I wasn't there, so sure, uh, yeah, that was probably real. Uh, sometimes it's easier for me to believe that than it is for me to just believe that God is with me. And, and you might be in a spot where you're just not sure, is God really with me? Uh, You might have some apprehension about the future. You might be thinking, he better be with me or this ship's going down. Uh, You could be in a whole lot of different places. But what I'd say to you is I believe in the sovereignty of God. I'm convinced of the sovereignty of God. Um, And I know that he knew you'd be here in this room and chapter 7 would happen this week. And he, he understood all of that. And maybe he put it all together so that you could just hear this one small little piece of imagery that kind of often gets overlooked. It's just a few words from the story of Joshua. So, so here's what it is. Um, the people had one last obstacle to cover before they could go into the promised land, and that was the Jordan River. They had to cross the Jordan River. That's not a big deal. In fact, I brought a picture of what the Jordan River looks like uh, most, of, most of the time. Uh, that's navigable, right? We could figure out a way across. I mean, Adam's an engineer. Surely we could all just sit around and wait for him to figure it out. Uh, we could figure out how to cross that. That's what it looks like most of the year. Check this out, though. In Joshua 3, verse 14, it says, So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. Of course it's at flood stage. I brought a picture of it at flood stage. This looks a little more difficult to traverse, and this is the obstacle uh, that they have before them. Now, I think it's significant that it was at flood stage, because if it wasn't, you know, they'd just float across and not worry about trusting God. But this is what they had to cross. Verse 15, the next verse says, yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and put their feet, and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed crossing on dry ground." So here's what I, I want you to know as, as a pastor, as uh, a leader, as just somebody who loves Jesus and cares about where you're going. God is working upstream in your life. It says that the water piled up a great distance away, 
and that the back edge of that water flowing down went by as soon as the priests touched their foot to the water's edge. In order for it to pile up and be cut off a great distance away, God had to be working ahead of time, didn't he? In order for it to all flow right down. God is working upstream in your life even right now. Even right now, in the situations that you're up against, God knows what you're going to need tomorrow, and he's already there. He's already working on it. He's already working upstream. God's working ahead of time. The obstacle that you're facing isn't any different. God is working upstream to bring about what you need at just the right time. And I think there's probably a whole lot of you who could look back over the years and say, you know, I believe that because it's happened so many times in my life. Uh, maybe you're like, yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Uh, find somebody with a beat-up Bible and ask them if that's ever happened. Uh, I guarantee you the answer will be yes. And they can probably even point to a specific example. Or, uh, or maybe you need to look back at your own experience and see where God came through so that you can trust him for what's right in front of you. But remember the big idea from last week about sowing and reaping? The big idea was you get what you go for. Uh, This generation of Israel got what they were going for. They believed God to lead them into the promised land, and they took action to go where he led. And I think today we would do well to follow in their footsteps. They consciously chose to be devoted to God and to his plans. Uh, My good friend, uh, Dr. Jerry Sitzer, who many of you know, he has this saying, he says, information is not a biblical value. Formation is, or transformation, if you will. Not, not information, but change, actual shaping of who we are. In other words, if you read the story and you study the Bible and hear the message and then you just go out and do whatever you were going to do anyway, um, that's information. That's, that's passive. You just take it in and it is what it is. But the New Testament tells us that God wants us to live by faith. That's transformation. It's active. Uh, we either choose it or we ignore it, but it changes us. Uh, I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to take just a couple minutes and just just respond to uh, the goodness of God. Maybe that for you means to celebrate what he has done in the past. Maybe that for you means to renew your hope in what you need him to do going forward. But I want to just tell you this story. Uh, On November the 8th, 1519, 500 years ago here in just just a couple of weeks, the Spanish explorer Hernando Cortez, Cortez... landed on the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. What a great place to land if you're going to explore somewhere. Uh, He had been part of Spanish conquests of most of the Caribbean, so like what is the modern-day Dominican Republic, Haiti. Uh, He was in Cuba. That's where he set off from to get to Mexico. And the 11 ships that sailed with him in his armada had 100 sailors and 500 soldiers. And his mission was to go and basically conquer the Aztecs and pillage their, uh, their treasures, bring it all back, and eventually conquer Mexico for Spain to become part of their empire. And when they landed there, he discovered something that he really wished he had known beforehand, and that is that they were incredibly outnumbered. Uh, some estimates say that there were as many as five, five million indigenous people there, and that their forces outnumbered Cortez forces as much as 100 to 1. Uh, he didn't know that till he got there. And so for him, it was decision time, right? Fight or go back. Now, I'm not suggesting that the cause was noble, but the decision he made, I think, can teach us all a really valuable lesson. In this moment of decision, 
when he had to decide, do I fight on against difficult circumstances, overwhelming odds, or go back, uh, he, he uttered maybe the three most famous words in military history. Knowing that his men would retreat if they had the option, he gave the order, burn the ships. That's where the phrase came from, to burn, burn the ships. There is no going back for us. Uh, if you're wondering how it turned out, they speak Spanish today in Mexico, so uh, favorably for them. Um, as the Israelite people go out and they, they face battles and they struggle and, and they face just the stuff of life as well, they too were often outnumbered, uh, discouraged. Maybe you can relate to that. Uh, discouragement is a real thing. They were often unsure what to do. You ever been just in limbo, just paralyzed by indecision? Uh, they, they too sometimes were lacking faith. Uh, but I want to share what Joshua did about it. It's on page 101 in the story. You'll read it this week. It's Joshua 24, verse 14. Joshua stands before the people. He gathers up the nation. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you if you would stand with me. And this is what Joshua said to them in Joshua 24, verse 14. He said, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my household, you choose what you want to do. We will serve the Lord. Before two million people, he declares, burn the ships. It's, it's decided for me. Uh, we're going to sing a couple of songs and just take a moment of acknowledging that he's God and I'm me and I'm good with that. Um, I hope you'll take that time to declare your hope in him. You might have been a Christian for a long, long time, uh, but once in a while, it's good for the soul to stand up and you'd say, you know what? As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That is decided. And maybe just light the ship on fire again. A moment to declare our hope. Not that he needs it, but we're giving God the opportunity to lead us forward wherever he wants. So I'm going to pray, and then the band will lead us. Lord, uh, God, I just thank you that you're working upstream. I look back and I think about the times that, um, that you've been there to meet me at the right time. Maybe after a lot of struggle, maybe after a lot of heartache, and maybe I wanted it to happen sooner, but when I needed it, you've always been there. So I just want to declare that and acknowledge that. And today, Lord, uh, would you give each one of us just a new fire, God, to burn, burn the ships? There's, there's no going back. There's not something better out there that we're somehow missing out on. God, I pray that you would help us to go all in for your future. God, to forget what is behind and press ahead in accordance with your will and to follow your lead into our future, Lord. God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you're at work already for our tomorrow in Jesus' name. Amen.
I want to remind you of something as we get ready to go out and we're going to face whatever you're going to face and deal with. Uh, a pretty well-known verse, probably many of you have this on a coffee cup somewhere. Romans 8.28 says that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Uh, we know that many things are in accordance with his purpose. Uh, one of them is that we forget what is behind and press on toward the goal. Uh, but I just want to leave you with the encouragement that God is working on your behalf. And if you can look back into the past and just dare to believe that uh, when he came through for you to, before, he'll do it again, uh, you'll, you'll have what you need to press on. So Lord, I pray that you would just give a lift to every single heart, every single attitude would just be encouraged and raised in the knowledge that you are for us, that you have good things out in front of us, not just behind us, uh, but God, that we could look toward the future with anticipation of the things that you have in mind, that we've been created anew in Christ Jesus to do the good things that you prepared in advance for us to do. God, I pray that you would let that sink in by faith, Lord. So that we could just, we just believe you for good things. God, I pray that you would work through the story. Uh, God, I pray that you would uh, make time in our schedules for us to participate in that. Lord, I pray that we would just dare to believe again that you're going to do good things. God, that we can influence our families, that we can lead them in that same belief, Lord. Go with us today. Be blessed by our actions. Uh, if it's in accordance with your will, give the Seahawks a big victory today. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys. Have an amazing, amazing Sunday afternoon.